Welcome to the Convergence Podcast. The Convergence is a space designed for university and college students, post-secondary students, and young adults to explore and deepen their faith. It's a space to think, question, doubt, and hopefully, ultimately, to worship. So glad you're here. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to a new year and a new Convergence Podcast. We're excited to explore with you our new series of Ask a Better Question, keeping in step with the daily theme from last year. Thanks for tuning in to this convergence on What is a Human with Bob Osborne. Hope you enjoy. Okay, so tonight, uh, what is a human? And, and uh, Logan said, you know, these are questions people ask, but maybe nobody's asking this question. <laughs> but it's a profound question, actually. Profound. Uh, tonight, um, I'm going to try to poke around in it, but I'm sure uh, there's things you would want to add. There's... I'll, I'll say the line that I always say. There's so much more I could say. <laughs> uh, this, is as, this is a topic as long and as deep as the human experience, right? What is a human person? Um, but we want to just muse on it uh, as a beginning point uh, because it really is something we're being exposed to in one way or another in our studies and certainly in our culture. So that's what we're asking tonight. And I thought we would start with uh, Psalm 8, This will be our reflection point as we begin, and the text will be on the screen. It's coming, it's coming. They're thinking about it. Here it is. Um, It's on its way. You'll have to do some editing on this podcast here, uh, (laughs) Daniel. Psalm 8. Oh, that'll probably work. I don't know if you can... uh, Oh, there we go. Hey. All right, Psalm 8. And I, what I've chosen to do is, uh, if you, you know this about your Bibles, you'll often see marginal notes in your Bibles, which is a, a variant reading of that thing. And sometimes things are chosen because um, just simply for clarity in the text. So I'm using the NIV text, but I'm using some marginal readings that you would see if you're reading your NIV, you would see it in the, the bottom of your, of your text. And these are very good readings. And I think um, this marginal uh, reading here is clear in terms of the specific poetry that's going on and helps us dive more deeply into the meaning, okay? So that's why I'm using the the marginal readings as you see here. And you can read it later in your own Bible if you want to. So for the director of music, according to Giddeth, what is that? We don't know. It's some musical term. you know, this is a waltz or this is a polka. I don't know what this is. But it's a musical notation, right? This is, this is uh, what's going on here. And it's really interesting when you look at the Psalms, those, those words that come right under Psalm 8 or Psalm whatever it is, is part of the received text. It's part of the authoritative text, a Psalm of David, okay? And you'll see many notations in the Psalms, but here it is. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is a human being that you are mindful of him, a son of man that you care for him? 
you have made him a little lower than Elohim. I left that in there and we'll come back to it. And crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So go right back to the first slide there. What do we see here? What is this? This is a psalm, but what is a psalm? A hymn. A hymn. Yeah. Prayer. Prayer. Poetry. Poetry. Song. It's an act of worship. What? A poem. Yeah. All these things. Profoundly, all of that suggests this is an act of worship right now, right? This is a hymn of praise. Obviously, it's an act of worship. And what's it about? First of all, it's a recognition of the grandeur or the immensity, the glory of God. And exhibit A for the psalmist is the vast heavens, right? The incredible vast heavens, which he calls the work of your fingers to God. It's an interesting thing. The immensity of the starry sky is just but little work to God. This awesome God, and he says later, doesn't need, if you oh, go back there, doesn't need support from the rulers and, and power brokers of the world, but it's through the praise of children and infants. <laughs> Such an awesome God, he just uses children's song, which no politician is really thinking about right now when they're playing <laughs> politics, right? And power politics in the world, it's children singing that God is, delights in and perhaps moves the nations in some way we can't quite quantify. The psalmist is meditating. He's pondering the vastness of the heavens, which is greater than he could know, even though if you go out on a, you know, without light pollution and you can look at the sky, you see the immensity there. But as we have been able to look further and further into space, you know, uh, we've realized how immense this really is maybe up to 400 billion stars in our galaxy, 400 billion, and maybe as many as 2 trillion galaxies. 400 billion stars in a galaxy and 2 trillion galaxies, and we're just floating around one star? That, that's an immensity. This is only what we can see so far. The, Actually, the universe keeps getting bigger to us. So the question emerges, who are we then in all of this, in this immensity? What is a human in this sea of vastness? So I've chosen the marginal reading I said in the NIV text because it is more literal, which helps us know some of the play here of the poet. The psalmist, being poetic, uses two words for human, as you can see here, uh, the next slide. Um, what is a human being? Human being there is the word enosh in the Hebrew, which is just a generic word for human, but it comes from the name. Uh, the, the first enosh or enoch, sometimes it's rendered, is in the early parts of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, where it says that this man enosh walked with God. And then God took him. 
So Enosh or Enoch is said to be the first person to call on the name of the Lord and to walk with God. So that's one aspect of being human, being a faithful human. But the, the, second, uh, the second rendering here, a son of man, Ben Adam in the Hebrew. Adam, son of Adam or son of man, because Adam literally uh, relates to the word man. It's a generic word. So Adam is just called man as his name. <laughs> hey, man, right? <laughs> Adam. Um, the human made by God who failed, and we follow in that long line. So faithful man and unfaithful man, the man who made the big mistake, and we all follow in that mistake. The question, what is a human? Who are we? And what does God, and why does God think of us? Why is he mindful about us? And why does he care about us? You know, when someone says, I've been thinking about you, that's generally a good thing, right? <laughs> Unless it's the police or a collection agency, right? <laughs> but someone says, I've been thinking about you, you go, well, yeah, you feel honored to have occupied mental space in their minds, right? And God is thinking about us, caring for us, not only as a collective, but as unique persons. So I don't think he really thinks of humanity. He thinks of Kelly and Barb and, you know, Logan and Esther, Tina, right? He thinks of us by name. When I think of my family, I don't think of my collective family. I think of Marnie and Aaron and Susan and, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a grandpa, Lux and Arlo, and those are all, that, those are my girls. And then I have a son-in-law, Chad, which I bless. I bless God for bringing a son-in-law into my life so we can watch football together. <laughs> but I think of... The names, each person, each person matters, right? It, it, it was said about Karl Marx, the, you know, the originator of Marxism, that he, he loved humanity. It was just every particular person he couldn't stand, right? <laughs> and so, but God loves us not only in our collective, but in our individuality. So the psalm then focuses in a little tighter on the wonder. Uh, you have, no, back, you have made him a little lower than, sometimes the rendering will be angels or God. Elohim is an ambiguous word. It's often used for God, but it really just, it's just speaking. It's a Hebrew word that talks about this almost class of spiritual. It's the, 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 the beings of the heavenly realms of whom God is the Elohim of Elohims, right? God is, uh, it's a generic word, just like we use the word God, um, that is a generic word, God, right? Because there could be gods, but there is God. So when we say God, we're, to, we're speaking of Yahweh, right? We're speaking of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're particular about it. But we're using a generic word for God, right? You have made him, or hu the human, a little lower than the heavenly beings or God himself. And that sense here, a little lower, could be also rendered for a little while, so it's interesting. You made us in the hierarchy of beings just a little lower than the heavenly beings for a little while. Mm. <laughs> this is suggesting something quite profound. What are we made for? What are we now, but what are we made for? Now, the vision of humanity that we see here is blowing the psalmist's mind. It's just he's looking at the stars. He's thinking about the greatness of God. And he's saying, what are we in all of this? And it's just, 
It's just astounding to him that God, the great God of the universe, would think about us and care for us because he's convinced we are the focus of his care and his attention. That's quite a thing to say, but that actually doesn't come from us. That comes from God himself who has said those things. So two things I want us to notice here as we continue. First, uh, on the next slide, that questions are appropriate to the life of faith. So this is what we're talking about all fall. When, he, when the psalmist is immersing himself in thoughts of God and he asks the appropriate question as he thinks about God, as he thinks about the immensity of the universe and he thinks about the greatness of God, and he asks the appropriate question then, well, who are we and who am I? That's the question that should be asked out of that. That's where he goes in his worship. Well, who am I that I could even be with you or that you would think of us or think of me, right? So questions are appropriate to the life of faith. In the context of contemplation or meditation or prayer or worship, this is the question that is set off in him. And I think this is right. This is what happens. Drawing near to God sets us off in all kinds of questions. All kinds of questions about ourselves and about the world that we live in, the goodness of the world and the brokenness of the world. We're going to end uh, our, our series of questions this year with two talks at the end of, uh, of, of our semester, next semester in the spring. What is wrong with the world and what is right with the world? <laughs> those, are two, those are two questions that deserve asking, right? So too many of us think that faith is just answers. Faith supplies the answers. And faith is just the acceptance of answers and don't question. That will actually break your faith at some point if you continue with that thought. The better way to do it, and Logan has already alluded to this, is to say that my question should actually lead to a better question so that I can reframe the question <laughs> in a deeper way with more understanding, right? Isn't it the smartest person in your class who asked the best question, right? It's the wisest person who asked the most penetrating question. So uh, ask, pray, ponder, read, and ask again. This is part of our faith. Actually, you'd be surprised at how many questions there are in the Bible. By one count, there's over 3,000 questions in the Bible. And what you'll find is, in the biblical questions is that the Bible will ask your questions for you. So you'll say, that's my question. But it will also ask questions you never thought of to ask. And it will deepen, deepen your questioning, just like what is happening here with the psalmist, so that you are led into depth and wisdom. This is what PhD students are doing, right? PhD students, I was just sitting with uh, someone this week who's beginning their PhD, and their whole job right now is to figure out what their question is. <laughs> he's got a sense, he's got a sense of where he wants to go, what he wants to study, but, and he's a very smart guy, but he doesn't even know what he's asking yet. <laughs> and the process to begin is to say, what am I really asking? So ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Questioning when it's with sincerity and directed toward God in all of sincerity and in the search of truth is always rewarded. Second is our question for tonight. What is a human? One of the most profound questions then we can ask. It, in one sense, we could say it seems obvious, 
But in other sense, it's really elusive. It's an elusive thing. And as we began with Psalm 8, talking about um, the majesty of God, the only way that we can, and this is one of my big points tonight, the only way we can really navigate this is to say that the only way we can ask, answer the question, what is a human, is to start with God. God is the reference point for what a human is. So to ask the question, what is a human, is actually a theological question. Theological meaning, what does theological mean? It means words about God. In words about God, in thinking about God, in orientation toward God is the only way we can understand who we are. One way to understand then our present troubles is um, that it's hard to know who we are without God. Uh, some of you have studied, Logan studied philosophy. Anybody else studied philosophy? Oh, we got a few philosophers here. And you've studied Frederick Nietzsche, right? Uh, probably looked at him somewhat. Uh, I mean, Fred Nietzsche has made a huge impact on the 20th century. But he famously was the one who said God was dead. Um, and what he meant by that was not that God had just recently died. Nietzsche actually w believed that God never existed, but we were waking up to the fact that he wasn't there. And what Nietzsche then said is it's a very scary prospect now, and he admitted this, that if God is not there, if God is dead, if, if there's, if there's uh, an absence of a God who rules the universe and loves us, then everything gets revisioned, all morality and meaning, right? We become our own gods. And then what happens then is we're going to have to will ourselves to meaning and will ourselves to power. This is what he said. You just make up life and go after it. Um, and so that, that's, what, that's what happens when God is absent. So what happens is <laughs> if there's no God, what is a human person in that regard? And the lesson is when God vanishes, so does the human person. And the struggle in our time is what we can say about a human person. The human is a theological category. So here's what we can say about humans. I'm just going to collect some thoughts about humans. Some of this is from what we might call the imago Dei or the image of God, but some of it is just simple observations. First of all, humans are bodies. We are bodies. Are we just bodies? No, we're more than that. One of the problems in thinking is when you become reductionistic, when you say we are merely bodies, we are nearly, merely brains or brain chemistry, right? But we are bodies, and poor thinking ignores that. Sometimes in poor Christian thinking, it ignores our embodied state. Being a body means we're connected to the earth, that we live off the earth. We feed off the earth. We breathe the earth. We are earthly. We uh, could say that the earth sustains us. And so that's why I said before, Adam is a generic word for man. Adam is actually related to, in the Hebrew word to earth. Uh, just like our English word is related, uh, our English word human is related to earth, right? Humus, right? Earth, not hummus. That's, that's chickpeas, right? <laughs> But humus, what is humus? Humus is the organic material of soil, right? Human humus, we're earthly. A human is, lives off the earth. So this is fundamental to who we are. And it's one thing I want to say is that 
being embodied is not incidental to us. It's fundamental to our human self. So we, we have to correct that view of thinking that says when we die, we escape this body and we go off to be with God as if our spirituality or our soul, our, our, our inner nature is the only thing that matters. It's not the case. The biblical story is that uh, the tragedy of death is the separation of our spirit and our body in some way. It's the coming apart of those things. What is God's answer to that? It's in the resurrection where God unites the body and the spirit together in what Paul calls a spiritual body, something of a new order. So our future is not disembodied. It's embodied in a way that we actually haven't seen yet. We actually haven't seen the new, new creation, the new humanity. So bodies. Um, sometimes people think, well, um, I don't like my body right now. I don't want this body forever. Don't worry. <laughs> you will be beautiful, right? God will have a way of making your embodied existence extraordinary, right? So that's the way it is. We are bodies, and bodies matter. Paul talked about this in the Corinthian letters, that uh, to be out of the body is to be unclothed, which is an abnormal state. So to be human is to be embodied, right? Um, we are persons. So we can't reduce a human, a human being to a body. We have to say there's much more than that. And that is a human is a person. And person is a really good category for talking about things. Human persons are, in some sense, mysteries. Um, but when we talk about the person, we're talking about the real I. The real, the real, you know what I mean, I. Not I, but I, right? I. The real I. There's you and there's I. And to talk about persons is to talk about something that is not existent in all else of creation. God is personal, and he made persons to reflect his personalness, to enter into relationship with him and each other which means that we are eyes who can relate to you, right? Uh, Martin Buber talked about um, the difference between I-it relations and I-you relations, which is a very interesting thing. To relate to an it is a one-way relation, right? It's a thing, but that thing cannot disclose itself, right? It can't answer back. It can't enter into relationship. But there's something of a whole different dynamic when you enter into a relationship with a you, with another person. That person can choose to open themselves, to, 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 to be discovered, to dialogue, to get, be known. And this is what God is doing for us. He is opening himself to, to relationship with us. He wants to be known, and he wants to know us. This is in many ways... Um, than what language is all about. Language is an incredible aspect of our humanity. Language, actually, I'm kind of nerdy about language because I find it absolutely mystifying and thrilling that I can bring out of the inner parts of my soul and disclose myself to someone about what I think or feel. I can communicate in some way that nothing else in in physical creation can do. Persons are distinct by language, and that in itself is a godlike quality. God speaks, and then 
he gives to the human person the ability to speak. And think how he does this, right? At Genesis 1, God is saying, let there be, and it is. Words are affecting change. Words are making things happen. Then he creates the human person, and what does he do? He breathes his breath into the human person, and the human person becomes a living soul. And now that living soul can speak. God waits to what man will name the animals, right? He waits to see what they would be called. And it says in the text, whatever he calls them is what they are. (laughs) But think about the fact that the human had to have breath to speak. Have you ever had the wind knocked out of you? Yeah. I mean, when I played sports, that would happen all the time. Boom, you get hit and you can't talk. And someone says, what's wrong? And you're going, Right? You, I mean, we call it the wind knocked out of you. It's just a blow to your breathing apparatus. But think about it. Only if you have breath can you speak. Language is articulated breath. It's the breathing out of our life into meaning, into words. We are not meant to merely breathe. We're meant to speak. We're meant to let our breathing communicate and reveal ourselves, and to relate. It's fascinating. So this is what it means to be a person. A good question to ask yourself is, what are the words that have shaped me? And then ask, what do I need to say, and to whom do I need to speak? There's always a deeper question. We have a capacity for God, okay? This is profoundly what it means to be a human person. Humanity is set apart from the rest of creation by this capacity as nothing else in creation has. Um, You remember uh, Augustine's famous quote. If you haven't heard this, most of you have probably heard Augustine on the first page of his Confessions, which is one of the great books. You should say, some point in my life, I'll read the Confessions, okay? Get Sarah Rudin's translation. It's, It's amazing. Um, But on the first page, he says, you have, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So this capacity for God is at the heart of our search, because whatever we're looking for, whether we know it or not, or whether we understand it or not, is we're looking for God. One of the great questions to ask then is, what are people actually looking for? What do they think they're looking for? And what are they actually looking for? And G.K. Chesterton, uh, the great English writer, once said that when a man knocks on a brothel door, he's looking for God. That's a fascinating insight. Um, So Augustine was saying, you know, all his life, because his confessions is actually his testimony. He said all his life he was pursuing the intellect, and he was pursuing fame, and he was pursuing, um, well, famously, Augustine was pursuing sexual fulfillment. Um, One of our church fathers was a libertine. (laughs) He was a a randy man, okay? That's Augustine, right? And he knew this. He knew he should straighten up, but his famous prayer was, Lord, make me good, but not yet. (laughs) That's Augustine. And he was pursuing sexual fulfillment. John Donne, the the poet, was like that. But he realized at some point that what he was looking for was God himself. He was looking for God without God. He was looking for the ultimate without the ultimate. 
which is a strange condition we have, right? It's like the prodigal son. The prodigal son wanted his father's stuff without his father. And this is our strange condition, which we're going to talk about later in the year. Something called sin, which is actually not a depressing topic. It's a very hopeful topic. Because to actually name sin is to say, this is not innate to the human person. It's not intrinsic to who we are. It's a corruption of our natures. Now, we're all infected by it. It's, you know, it's COVID times a million, right? (laughs) We're all infected by this. And we're all, right from the beginning, we're infected by it. But it means that there's hope for the human race that sin can be removed from us and extracted from us. And right now, actually, our task is to move toward the life that Jesus gives and to move out of uh, all the ways that we try to pursue God without God. Um, Story. I'm not going to say much here, except I love to talk about story. But human beings are story in the sense that they are always looking for meaning and we live within narratives. So... Our life unfolds, and we're looking to put it together. We're looking to understand where's, what's going on, and where is this going, and will it be a good end? We're story creatures. Broken and redeemed. I won't say much here either. Just to say that we are broken. You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, very famous words that have resonated with all of us. If, if you've read through Romans, he says, I don't understand myself. He says, the thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I do. (laughs) And then he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will set me free? Right? And then he moves into Romans 8, the glorious pinnacle of Romans. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. So he's saying that there's a problem. We are broken, but we're also redeemed. You know, it's, the, it's on the cross. It's on the, in the revelation of God in Jesus as he takes upon himself the sin of the world that we actually see the serious condition of humanity. And at the very same time that we see our sin condition, we also see the love of God. It's only revealed at the same time how bad off we are and how much God loves us and has solved that issue at the very same time he does that. So we're broken. I like to put it together. We're broken and redeemed. It's not split apart. We're put those things together. But the, finally, the greatest thing I want to say about being a human or about humanity is here it comes. <laughs> it's building up. Here it is. It's Jesus. That's the greatest thing I can say about humans. Jesus. When Pilate says in the end, at the end of Rome, in the end of uh, John's gospel, behold the man or behold, literally in the Greek, behold the human. Behold, look at the human. That's what Pilate is saying at, in Jesus' trial in the gospel of John. Behold, look at the human. I don't think Pilate quite knew what he was saying there, but John knew what Pilate was saying when he wrote those words down. Here is the human. Paul talks about uh, in Adam we all died, but in Christ we all live. And then he calls Jesus the second Adam, the new Adam, the beginner, beginner of the new human race. So when we ask what is a human, we should answer 
Jesus. Jesus is the human. When we talk about Jesus, we're not now talking about not that God dressed up in a costume, just so we could hear him talk like because we can't hear spiritual things, and so God dressed up. We're not saying that. We're not saying that Jesus put on the robe of humanity and then took it off. We're saying that God actually, and this is mind-blowing, that he actually became human in a permanent state. That's, that's incredible. God is permanently, has become permanently human with us. God, the Father remaining Spirit, <laughs> and the Holy Spirit remaining Spirit, but God the Son, in the Trinitarian understanding of God, becoming absolutely one with us in our humanity, permanently. So that after the resurrection, Jesus ascends into the presence of God as a man to forever be a man, a human. Isn't that incredible? That blows us away. That blows me away. I can't think about the great things of, of faith without being moved by them, even though I've known them for so long. So was, I mean, how do we parse this out? Is Jesus two persons? Is he God and man? He's sort of like a schizophrenic? <laughs> no, he's one person. The creeds tell us this. Was he human like us? Well, he is human like us, except in one fundamental distinction. He was without fault or sin. So when we say, I've sinned or, you know, I failed or because I'm, you know, I'm only human. Well, in one sense, we get that because we're all sinners. But it's not the essence of a human person. And therefore, we can struggle against our sins and know that someday they will be removed from us completely and fully. We all live with the disease, but the disease is not who we are. So Jesus, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you into new creations. Now, I want to just end very briefly and very quickly, and then we'll wrap it up, with, uh, with something uh, that's in your, um, in your um, UCM guide. And it's just a little, it's one page there called Three Words to Orient Us. And so I want to give us three words to sort of orient you as you travel now going forward. And there are these three words. Uh, the first is no. No. Are you okay with the sound there? Is it it's okay? Okay. Um, it's a terrible thing. So I'm going to talk about three words here to help us navigate ourselves going forward just for a couple of minutes here. It's a terrible thing to be in a state of unknowing. Can you remember your first days at in university? Did you know where you were going? Did you know where your classes were? You still don't. You still don't. <laughs> well, that would be important to get a hold of that, right? Where the classes are and <laughs> where the bookstore is. And... But, you know, if we don't know something, I, I, got, I, I actually skipped grade six. That was just to tell you about myself. <laughs> I skipped grade six, and I didn't even know what was going on. They just said, Bobby, because that's what they called me back then. You're coming with us, and they moved me from the grade six classroom to the grade seven classroom where I was totally lost in arithmetic. 
math. I didn't know what was going on. I missed whole big sections of stuff, right? They thought I could handle it, I guess. But it was a terrible feeling not knowing what's going on. And we can have many experiences like this. It's a great gift when we're oriented to the world of knowing in some way, filled in on what we need to know. There's more to knowing than we know. And here's another topic that I actually am quite fond of, knowing. How do we know? What do we know? You could talk about knowing things like being a master of a subject, you know, you know your, your math. Sierra knows her math. But it's another thing that to know your professor <laughs> who knows the math. <laughs> and if you're lost, to say, you know, with confidence to ask him or her to help you if you knew they wouldn't bark at you and you knew they'd be friendly to you. Knowing persons is totally different than knowing things. So let me just say this. Knowing God is not like a puzzle. You know, I, I remember that moment in seminary in grad school where I was sitting there and James Houston, the venerable old professor of spirituality at Regent College of Vancouver, who, by the way, was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. He knew C.S. Lewis. So if you want to shake my hand, then you will have... <laughs> Shaking the hand who shook the hand of C.S. Lewis. And James Houston at the time was probably in his 80s, still going strong. And he said, you know, uh, we sometimes posture ourselves as lonely thinkers with God over there. And we're trying to puzzle out God. And we think we're locked in our own mind and God is over there. And God doesn't really want to say anything. And we're, we think of God as an intellectual puzzle. He said, the wonderful move to make is to invite God into your own thoughts and say, God, help me to think about you. Teach me. Be with me. Talk to me. Help me to think about you and your world with you. So knowing persons is radically different than knowing things because persons disclose themselves, just as I said earlier about Martin Buber's um, you know, rubric, I, it, and I, thou. So knowing, what are the things that you need to know most right now? What are the pieces of knowledge you need to pursue? What do you need to settle out in your thoughts? Maybe you don't know the answer to that question, <laughs> but you could talk to God about it. All right, experience. So here's another point of orientation, experience. Um, I was very much affected by C.S. Lewis's uh, book on the four loves, which is one of the great books. He talked about four different Greek words for love and what they represent. There's the love of family, storge, the love of friends, philos, the love of lovers, eros, eros, and then God's love, agape, right? But he made a really interesting thought. He said, lovers uh, look into each other's eyes. They're totally absorbed in the other, right? There's the love of the, it's the love of the beautiful. And it's the love that is just between two people for each other. He said, the love of friends is different. It's 
lovers stand looking at each other. Friends stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and look at some common thing. So if you're, I don't know, a fan of the NBA, because I am, then, uh, you know, we can talk NBA, right? We can stand shoulder to shoulder and talk about what's going on there, and we enjoy the common thing together by being friends, right? We enjoy something ahead of us. So think of our experience of the world as friendship with God, standing with God to look at all the variety and immensity and beauty and troublesome stuff and darkness and light and, and all of the variety of the world that we could stand as friends and look at it all and say, what does it mean to experience this life in friendship with God? What can I learn and what should I taste and know experientially in my life? So I'm turning 65 this winter, just to let you know. I am a senior citizen, and I've had a lot of experience. And I look back, and I'm thankful for, for all the experiences that I've gone through. Some of them were difficult and hard. A lot of them have been beautiful and good, but the sum total of it all is I've tasted of life with my friend, <laughs> as God has been my friend for all those years, and have experienced. There's no replacing of experience. In fact, I know that's part of what an old man can do. Talk to young people about what they're experiencing, right? So it's a powerful thing. Experience. What are you meant to experience in this season of your life? All right, and finally, do. So I talked about knowing, experiencing, and finally doing. So God has commissioned us to do. In fact, in two months from now, Logan is going to bring us a talk on doing. He's going to tell us what to do. <laughs> You're going to love telling people what to do, aren't you, Logan? Yeah. I love this line from C.S. Lewis. God has given us the dignity of causality. Do you like phrases like that? You don't like that phrase here? No. Well, what's causality? Making something happen, right? Yeah, decisions or actions. And God has given us the dignity of being able to do things that make a difference. Right? If we were ghosts, we couldn't make anything happen. But we're bodies, which means when we push a chair, it moves. Which means we can do good things or we can do hurtful things. The dignity of causality. As we walk in this world now, God has given the dignity of being able to do things that matter. Jesus said this, and I love this line, even a cup of cold water in my name. And he says cold. <laughs> he didn't just say a cup of lukewarm water. <laughs> he said, water when it's cold is really the good water, right? <laughs> and Jesus said, cold water. It's an interesting thing. It's a loving action. You're not just going to do some, oh, here's a glass of water. Leave me alone. He's saying, no, you do it with kindness. So you do things. And what I just want to say as I finish now is that 
don't just ask, what am I going to do with my life? Ask, what, I, what can I do with my day? As I, I walk through this day, what can I do? Who can I smile at? Who could I talk to? Who could I be friendly to? How could I do something kind for my friends? How could I do something kind for the person I don't even know who's serving me lunch, right? So that's do. The question, what is a human, is a theological question. It is a question about God and his intentions. It's a question that involves Jesus and what he reveals to us about our value, about our redeemed nature, and about where this story is going. So Psalm 8 really helps us there because it situates us in the wonder of creation and the wonder of who we are in it. And that's a question then worth pondering to say, what is a human being? What is a human? So many of us now are used to, I think, the ways that humans are being diminished. We're nothing more than our materiality. We're nothing more than our brain function. We're only our sexuality. These are reductionist statements, right? Let me quote as I finish the great scientist Stephen Hawking who once said this. This is Stephen Hawking. Do you know who Stephen Hawking is? You all know. He said, the human race is just a chemical scum on an average-sized planet orbiting around a very average-sized star in the outer suburb of one of a million galaxies. That's Stephen Hawking. He was having a bad day. (laughs) But he said that in the early 90s, and he didn't even know, because now we know there's way more galaxies, Stephen Hawking, than you ever thought. So the problem is even more wondrous. The reality is even more wondrous than you ever knew. It's just baffling that we're here. Psalm 8 does not try to locate our place in a sea of galaxies. It locates us in relationship to God, the one who made the galaxies. So what does it mean to be human? I like what the writer of John's gospel called himself, the one or the disciple whom Jesus loved. All right, that's my talk. Let's pray. And then we're going to have some food, right, Kelly? Yeah. Because we're bodies. We need carbs. (laughs) So, Lord, I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to reflect on your word and your world. Thank you for each person in this room who is loved, whom you are mindful of, and whom you care for. It's hard to fully realize who we are, and what we're destined to be. It's hard to do that. And oftentimes we diminish ourselves. So Lord, let us be loved by you, just as John said he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Let us say that about ourselves. And let us walk through this earth with creativity and boldness and confidence and wonder wonder at the world that you've made, and wonder about our very selves because you've given us our own humanity. And so we're of the earth, but we're also meant for an eternal existence, a resurrection existence. We thank you for all these things. They're wonderful. And because of all this, we worship you, we thank you, and we love you. Lord, bless us, and in a couple of weeks, we'll come back to discuss. So, Lord, 
keep everyone safe and well as we launch into this school year. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's podcast. We hope you are inspired to ask the bigger questions of life. Join us for Convergent Conversations on Thursday, September 28th at 7 p.m. at Brentview Baptist Church. We can't wait to see you there.